This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. How long do you have to wait for so-called elective surgeries that are crucial for Zoomer's quality of life? I'm talking about hip replacements, knee replacements, and cataract surgery. The Canadian Institute of Health Information has crunched the numbers and wait times are going up. On the positive side, I suppose this is happening as more people are receiving these life-altering procedures. So, for knee and hip replacements, the benchmark is six months. Now, across the country, less than 70% of patients got their new knees in that time frame. Two years ago, 82% of patients did. So, that's a pretty big jump. And one interesting statistic that I haven't quite figured out is that in Ontario, for all three of those procedures... About half of patients got their operations in half the recommended time, and the rest had to wait much longer. Now, it's hard to wrap your head around these numbers on radio, especially the way they have been expressed in this study. So uh, we'll go over them, and we'll parse them, and we want to hear from you about how long you are waiting or have waiting have waited for these procedures. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Right now, we are going to Dr. Sean Watley from the Ontario Medical Association. Hi, Sean, how are you? Hi, Libby. Thanks for having me back. Okay, well, um, the issue of a wait time uh, for, uh, I forget which of these surgeries, it's, that's the subject of one of your big ads. Absolutely. We, in fact, our campaign is called Not a Second Longer, and it's a call to every party, anyone who's running to get elected this June. We've asked them to pay attention to the wait times in their own riding. And so we, we wrap our campaign with a leaflet for Kathleen Wynne, and we say, did you know patients in your riding wait 232 days for cataract surgery? And we say patients shouldn't have to wait not a second longer. And so we want everybody who's running for provincial parliament to make health care an issue and say, we need to fix these wait times. We have ideas. Let's find solutions to, uh, to prevent patient suffering. Okay, so because it is very hard to wrap your head around the way these are uh, expressed. So let's take cataract surgery in Ontario, the, the benchmark, which is the government says you should get your surgery within this time frame is 112 days, uh, which is, uh, uh, it's like three and a half months. Uh, so uh, half patients get get their surgery in about half of that, get their surgery within 67 days, so which is pretty good. 
And 90% get it within 229 days, which is bad. So, Sean, do you have a handle on why that is? Does it have to do with the patient's location uh, or something like that? Well, the issue of distribution for health services in Ontario has been a big problem for years. The worry whenever I start talking about this or someone starts asking questions about it is that uh, our, our politicians who are listening might say, oh, we can fix that. Let us come in and create some rigid solutions. So we do have a, tr- we do have a problem with distribution, whether it's rural, urban, northern, southern. Uh, I know in Strathroy, the wait for a hip replacement uh, reported just last year, I believe, was 671 days, whereas hip replacement in the Kaihai report, uh, on average over the whole of Ontario, is now um, closer to 200, sorry, hip replacement, 242 days in 2017. That's, so, uh, that's not the average. That, that's 90% get correct. their surgery within that amount of time, but 50%, half of people, get their surgery within 82 days. Absolutely. And I say this to my patients all the time. I say, you know, if you're, if you're retired and you've got a spouse or you've got the means to travel around the province, you can get your hip replaced faster. But what kind of uh, insurance system is that when we say, listen, can you travel three, four hours or farther? Uh, maybe you'll find a shorter wait time somewhere else in the province. The, the challenge with that as well is that there's post-operative care, follow-up, complications. Uh, you want surgery to be done as close to home as possible. Patients well, shouldn't have to shop around the province. Well, y- y- yes and no, I say, because uh, I believe, and, and it's mandated for certain kinds of surgery, uh, I want to get my surgery in a place and from a doctor that does a lot of that particular type of surgery. If I live in a rural area, I don't want to go to a doctor who sees maybe two of those a year. Uh, it's, it's been proven that it's safer to do it that way. Isn't that right? Oh, absolutely. And you make a great point there, Libby. I'm, I'm talking about a few hours traveling across the Golden Horseshoe. I'm not suggesting that we should be doing complex surgeries in tiny little hospitals where they only do one or two of them a year. So we have many large hospitals that have high volume procedure rates and, and uh, excellent, excellent surgeons, but their wait times are much higher because those hospitals are under-resourced. And so that's an issue that we, we can talk about. Okay, well, there's, and there's another issue, and um, I first came to understand this when I was on a patient committee, actually, for uh, cancer treatment for pancreatic cancer. Um, so one of the issues are, is that uh, it's centralized waiting lists. So let me explain. Uh, one of the things is that every surgeon, and I believe that's the case in Ontario, because except for a few places, we do not have what's called centralized wait lists. Every surgeon has his or her own wait list. And surgeons, uh, hey, surgeons, they like to keep their own wait lists. They can be holdouts. And that holds things up where if you have a centralized wait list and you say, I'm going to get my hip replacement from the next hip replacement doctor that comes available, it would come a lot faster. 
So that is a beautiful, we could have a whole show on this, and I'm glad you raised that, Libby. You know, the funny thing is, um, we, when my patients say, I need a particular procedure, I say, great. And they say, who would you recommend? I say, well, there's this surgeon and that surgeon. I know them both well. I know their post-operative. Uh, I know their bedside manner. I know how they are technically. I've actually worked with them in the operating room, uh, but their wait times are very long. I, I say, however, there's another surgeon somewhere over here with a, uh, who I don't know, um, and they say, well, are they a good surgeon? I said, well, I imagine they are, but all I can really tell you is they have a very short wait list. So I think wait times are only one measure of quality. I think they're a measure of service. Uh, the reason I, I worry about a centralized one-size-fits-all system is now I have no way to hold my specialists to account. If they give lousy service or they are rude or not nice, yeah, so what if they have shorter wait times? But if they're not giving the care that I expect for my patients, I don't want to send my patients to them. So it's, it's a little more nuanced than simply saying there's a number that we have to beat. Well, yes and no, but but in in those cases and in places where they have these um, wait lists, and you would hope that uh, any surgeon who is allowed to perform these procedures is is pretty good at it. Maybe they're a, a little newer or something, but uh, that if the patient chooses, and I know, I mean, I, you know, I'm the same way. I I want you know the stamp of approval, and and if you told me to go to Dr. Joe, uh, I might decide I'm going to wait another three months to see Dr. Joe. But then you might decide, hey, I mean, I've also I've heard equally stories from people saying, you know, I I went to uh, this doctor, wherever it was uh, that I heard had room and, and he or she did a great job. Oh, absolutely. And I'm not trying to second guess the technical expertise of anyone here. I think we have great, great surgeons and physicians in Ontario. Uh, my issue is how well do they communicate back with the primary care? How, how available are they to deal with uh, questions post-operatively? Do their patients actually fully understand what's going on? So everybody has a little different approach. Even if you start looking at language and culture, does this particular surgeon, do they speak another language that can actually um, be useful for my particular I, patient? I'm going to get flack for saying this, but you know what? Surgeons are not known for their bedside manner. Oh, that's terrible, Libby. How could you say that? Well, they're, it's the personality. I mean, and, and a lot of them have, you know, nurse, navigator type people. People. Um, oh, there are a lot of nice surgeons. There are a lot of Come nice on. surgeons. I apologize to every surgeon. <laughs> I didn't mean that, but 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 you know, there's a certain stereotype, right? Um, uh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I I hear you, but you know, and in, in, there's really been a focus, certainly on the last 15, 20 years, that your ability to communicate is a core competency, and and so certainly, uh, I think surgeons are are getting better and better, and that old stereotype, I, I hope, is, is passing away. And, and just to uh, reinforce another stereotype, <laughs> the women surgeons are a lot better at it. Um, so uh, let's take a couple of calls. We've got Joan in Port Perry. Hi, Joan. Hi. You're on the air. Go ahead. Thank you. I want to talk not necessarily about elective surgery, but non-elective surgery, where you've had an accident or and you need a shoulder replacement. Uh, urgent cases are seen perhaps if they get a CT scan within a month. A non-emergency could wait up to three months. I myself am waiting since... Uh, April the 3rd, and I haven't had a CAT scan yet. 
And and what happened to you? It was it was it a, an accident of some sort? Yes, I'm vision impaired, and I missed a step and fell. Oh no! Sorry to hear that. So and when we talk about the opiate drugs, I can understand now why there is so much addiction. Because if I have to stay on these horrible drugs for three months, I could see where you could become addicted to them. I'm so sorry to hear that. I mean, this is, you know, it's, I don't even know what to say. So you're waiting, you have to get a CT scan and then you'll get a surgery date? Yes. Uh, Sean, do you have a comment on that? Well, first of all, I mean, these are the real stories that need we need to get this message through to our politicians. It's patients like Joan. I mean, your, your heart breaks for them, and you're trying to help them. They're in pain. They need a treatment. But Joan also makes a great point, you know, the difference between uh, an acute trauma that requires surgery, whereas, whereas uh, another patient who isn't dying or bleeding or, you know, in, in urgent need uh, in the same way that you would be in a car accident, they're made to wait much longer. So we do do some things quite well in, in uh, Canadian healthcare and certainly emergency surgeries, uh, you know, near-death experience. That we seem to perform really well, but it's it's when we think that oh that person could wait another few weeks or another few months, those waits just keep creeping up, and it's unconscionable at some point. Okay, uh, Joan, uh, thanks for sharing your story, and I really hope this clears up for you soon. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, okay, uh, l- let's take one more. Bill, hi, Bill. Hi. I don't know whether I'm one of the fortunate ones. I live in East York in East General Hospital. But I saw my GP in uh, August, and uh, by February, the middle of February, or the end of February, both my eyes, I had my cataracts done. Um, I was, you know, I mean, basically it was half a year from when I initiated it until it was totally complete, and I was quite happy with the process. Well, it's it's actually longer than what's recommended if it was six months, but uh, I, I guess you got probably got the first one done less than six months, right? Well, no, they were both done in February. So they were both basically done. One was done early February and the other was done later February. It was legally blind. But I guess the outcome was so good, and that's that's what... You know, that's what sticks in my mind. But the one thing about the East General is the wait times in the emergency. I've got a 91-year-old mother that's in and out of there. It's That's the real problem. I can accept six months to get my cataracts done, but being in a hallway for a day or two days or whatever, it's unacceptable. Yep. Um, thanks for telling us about your story, Bill. Thanks. Bye. Um, okay, uh, we are um, soon going to move on to some positive news that possibly might help with this. Uh, Dr. Sean Watley, what would you like to leave us with? Well, I think Bill put a great ending on this segment. You know, Canadian patients overall are extremely grateful for the care that they receive and and they know, you know, going blind versus being able to see, hey, I'm, I, I, I'm thankful for that procedure. And, and the trouble with that is it can make us complacent and say, look, we're not hearing a major outcry. What's another week on a waiting time? And so uh, we, we, we can't get um, presumptuous or complacent simply because we have thankful, gracious uh, patients. We, we're, we're here. We, we can do better. We can provide better service than we're doing. Okay. Dr. Sean Watley, thanks so much for that. Thanks again, Libby. 
Okay. Uh, you can uh, see all the details on wait times at, at CIHI is uh, CIHI, the Canadian Institute of Health Information. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about one kind of a replacement p- procedure that might help with these wait times. And that is making it day surgery. Uh, so we're going to hear about some innovative things and some good news when we return. Fight back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Now, we've been talking about surgical wait times, and one of the reasons for long sur- surgical wait times is a shortage of hospital beds, not necessarily a shortage of OR time. So Women's College Hospital is an ambulatory hospital, and it's pioneering an innovative response to the problem with knee replacements that are performed as day surgery. That's right. You wake up, take a walk, and go home. It's not for everyone, but here to tell us more, Dr. David Urbach, who is the Surgeon-in-Chief at Women's College. Hello, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, So, Tell me about this surgery. Uh, I gather it's only for people who are fit and active, correct? That's right. Uh, Not every patient uh, who gets a knee replacement uh, is going to be able to go home on the same day. Um, But we do estimate that um, at least a third of patients, probably up to a half, uh, would be able to be discharged uh, on a day surgery basis. Uh, Obviously, you need to have someone at home who can help you look after yourself for the first few days after surgery, and you have to be in reasonably good health. Uh, So how long does the surgery itself take? Uh, The surgery itself takes about, um, you know, 45 minutes or so. Um, And the surgery that we do is no different from the surgery that's done everywhere for knee replacement. It's really quite a standardized operation. Uh, What's different is the approach we take to patient care as well as the anesthesia that's given to the patients so they recover much faster. Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems to me that for all kinds of procedures now, the the standard way of dealing with it, 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 you know, it used to be they'd uh, let you lollygag around, but but now uh, basically... uh, caregivers, uh, the healthcare professionals want you out of that bed and walking around as fast as possible. Um, And it's a bit more than that as well. I would say um, there's something to be said for being in a familiar and comfortable environment. Um, We think what we're doing is actually enhancing the patient experience. We don't think of it as taking away from the experience. Um, We uh, we feel we're doing something uh, helpful and useful for people because most people would prefer to be at home if they could be at home. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, you answered one of my questions, which was, uh, is it, that the procedure is, is then exactly the same? It's identical. Okay. Uh, and uh, is, is the, the rehab then must be, is it the same or different once, if you're going home that fast? It's exactly the same. So typically now patients will stay in hospital between two or three days on average after a knee replacement surgery. Um, and, uh, you know, after those 48 or 72 hours, they're, they're home anyways. Um, and uh, then they'll get their own outpatient physiotherapy uh, as appropriate. So what we're trying to do is just shave a few more days off the length of stay um, and really make us independent of hospital beds. Because as you mentioned, uh, hospital beds are often the limiting factor 
that makes it difficult for us to access operating rooms. And uh, have you or anyone else done any calculations, say, uh, if, if this way of dealing with it was to become standard for, you know, whatever percentage of patients fit the bill, uh, how long could that cut wait times by? Um, well, it's, uh, it all depends on how much we're able to do on a day surgery basis. But just to put it in perspective, um, uh, what we would look for is uh, for the provinces to try and reinvest all the uh, extra dollars that they've put into joint replacement surgery. Um, and uh, if we can do it more cheaply uh, per case uh, for the same amount of money overall, we're hoping we could fund a lot more cases that could be done. Um, so depending on, on the proportion, uh, it's possible that we could really increase the supply of surgeries um, that could be done, which could really bring wait times down. And uh, do you see being able to do this with other types of surgery, like a hip replacement? A- exactly. Uh, and hip replacement is the next, uh, the next one we're targeting. Um, uh, a knee replacement surgery, I'm not sure if uh, people know, is the most co- common operation for which people stay in hospital after an elective surgery. It's, it's the number one. Uh, and hip is very close to that. So these are big operations. If you go to a, any hospital and look at a post-operative surgical ward, um, most of the people you see up there are going to be recovering from elective uh, orthopedic surgery. And um, the, that's our idea. We want, to, um, we want to leverage this idea. We want to apply it to as many procedures as possible to free up capacity in our system so that we can um, get as much value as possible uh, from the system that we have. And, and this is still in its infancy, I gather. Um, it's emerging in Canada. It's, uh, this is actually pretty common in the United States, um, uh, day surgery joint replacement, uh, and it's typically done in uh, private hospitals uh, that are typically owned by the surgeons who perform the procedures. Um, but it hasn't really disseminated um, in a lot of publicly funded healthcare systems. Now, uh, I have to uh, ask you a question about the procedure itself. I, I have to admit I'm, I'm uh, interested in this. You know, I've been told that I need a knee replacement. I'm bucking it. Uh, I know lots of people who've had hip replacements, and uh, they're good as new. Knee replacements, not so much. Uh, no. Uh, knee replacements are also very effective operations. Um, these operations don't necessarily last forever, and... Uh, our surgeons don't like to do them in patients who are too young because there is a likelihood that they may end up with a uh, need for a, a second replacement, um, you know, decades down the road. But um, hip replacement and knee replacement for arthritis are among the most effective operations uh, that we know of in terms of improving people's quality of life. And, and uh, with a knee replacement, because I, as I said, I know lots of people who have had uh, hip replacements and get back into competitive sports. Is, is that the case with knees? Uh, yeah. You can, um, the, uh, the difference is amazing uh, between people who have pain and, uh, and are debilitated uh, with difficulty moving. Um, the, the effect of a knee replacement is, um, uh, is quite astonishing. Okay. We'll leave it at that. Dr. David Urbach, thank you so much for talking about this. Appreciate it. My pleasure. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.